Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're going to move back to the literature, and as I have been moving into now with uh, the literature and the philosophy, we're going to keep to being a little more chronological. Uh, the last time we talked about literature, we talked about the Wanderer and Old English literature a little bit. Um, and today we're going to move into the world of Chaucer and uh, Middle English literature. Just to recap a little bit about the Wanderer in Old English literature, remember the uh, most of Old English literature was oral literature. It was literature that would be recited in the beer hall. It would be told around campfires. Uh, it was not something that was written down. Uh, it doesn't become written down until much later. So most of the Old English writers, Old English poems, nobody really knows who composed the poems, nor even how old the poems are. Because one of the things about oral literature is that it has traits and tendencies that allow you to improvise. And when you improvise, you can change the, um, change the facts around, you can change around what's going on. Uh, so the stories evolve. They may start out in one time period, and as new events occur, uh, they may make mention to those newer events. Uh, remember, literature was a way of um, transmitting uh, culture, transmitting religion, transmitting uh, ideas, transmitting bloodlines, uh, because there was no writing uh, in the beginning. Um, so we have a lot of flexibility in a lot of these stories that people are trying to keep alive and ideas that people are trying to keep alive. Now, as we come towards the end of the Old English period, uh, there's an event that we talked about when we talked about the history of the English language, and that was the uh, Battle of Hastings in 1066, where the Normans, uh, under William the Conqueror, conquer England and change the official language of England from English to French. So English, as we said, was a spoken language only, and it was only spoken by the lower classes. The upper classes were all speaking and writing in French, and this is why it, the English language changed so rapidly. It started out as a Germanic dialect and ends up picking up about 50% French vocabulary. Well, the language wasn't the only thing picked up uh, between the Old English and the Middle English period. Um, moving into the Middle English period, uh, literature picks up the traditions of the French. So literature moves from the beer hall and the campfire to the court. Um, and whenever you have a change in audience, there's always going to be large changes in the literature. Um, because you have a difference in audience, who it's directed towards. Uh, most of the Old English literature was directed towards a male audience. And so there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into having very many female characters or having very many female characters that were uh, even treated well or um, given much to say, period. This changes as we go into the Middle English period. Because after the language starts to, the official language switches back to English, as we said, it changed drastically. Um, and in the court now, the French court that has been transplanted to England, uh, you have men and women. So there's a huge shift in who the literature is being written for. A lot of the 
people who are actually paying the people to write literature are women. Uh, and women have, from the French tradition, a lot more say-so in the court. Um, they generally control the social uh, calendar. And this means that they kind of uh, decide who gets invited and who doesn't. Uh, and so even though they don't wield any official power, they somewhat wield quite a bit of power because if the women decide they don't like you, you don't get invited to any of the court functions. And if you're not invited to them, then you miss out on everything going on politically and economically. Um, so there is a shift and there is a bigger interest in um, catering to a female audience as well as a male audience. Uh, so you get a lot of the things like courtly romance, uh, uh, the ideas of you know the knight and the lady, and the knight is uh, way beneath the lady, and so she's inaccessible, but the knight's supposed to be in love with the lady and um, you know guard her honor. And again, this was something that was put in as sort of a civilizing thing for men, uh, for soldiers in particular. Because during warfare, if you know anything about actual warfare, not warfare from uh, stories or television, um, actual warfare generally involves a large amount of brutality, not just between the soldiers, but between the soldiers and often women. Um, rape was very common and is still very common in warfare, uh, especially if one side defeats the other side um, and drives all of the men out or kills all of them. It kind of leaves the women defenseless and rape has been uh, something that goes on in large amounts throughout history. Well, one of the things about these courtly romance stories is this is an attempt to civilize the men to say when you conquer another uh, army, uh, you don't run in and rape all the women. Uh, you have killed their protectors, and now you are bound um, by honor to protect these women. Now, that doesn't mean it did get rid of um, rape and warfare, far from it, but it is sort of pushing towards that audience. Now, one of the things that uh, doesn't become more enlightened is the view towards the lower classes. Um, and we talked a little bit about this with the shift in literature when it moves into Romanticism. You know, prior to Romanticism in literature, um, all of the serious stories were about upper-class characters. Um, you know, knights and lords and ladies and kings and queens and gods and goddesses. Those are the serious characters. Anytime you have lower-class characters, um, they're usually used for comedy. Even up through Shakespeare and uh, you know the Renaissance period, you still see this. A lot of Shakespeare's uh, comedies uh, have lower class characters in them. Um, a lot of his more serious plays, uh, the the parts that are comic relief, uh, involve the lower classes. And so this is something you see very much in this time period. While you have the stories of the lords and the ladies, and those are more serious tales, you also have a lot of humor based around the lower classes. Now, in the Middle English period, English literature was not really considered a major form of literature, even in England. Uh, most of the major literary writers were still writing in French or in Latin. You know, that was considered the language of serious literature. 
And while you do have lots of things that are being written in Middle English, uh, it's, it's considered not as high of an art form. Uh, and that is until you get to Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, for a lot of reasons, is considered sort of the founder of, uh, the founding father of uh, British literature because he's the first major British author that we know about. Remember a lot of the old English uh, poetry and poets, uh, was they were anonymous. No one knows how old they were or who even wrote them. Even in the Middle English period, a lot of the literature that you get is still anonymous. And the, the writers that you do know the names of um, don't have a huge body of work and don't have a body of work that uh, is influential, like Chaucer. Um, Chaucer becomes influential to all of the writers who come after him in the English tradition. And so he's sort of considered uh, the big writer in English. Chaucer is also writing towards the end of the Middle English period, and he's living in London, and he's writing in London. And if you remember, we talked about the Middle English language. It wasn't a standardized language. It wasn't unified. Uh, it depended on how far out in the country you lived and how late in the time period um, you may be speaking something and writing something that is closer to Old English. And so Chaucer being in London and being later in the period is actually writing literature and writing in a language that is more similar to modern English than a lot of his contemporaries who are writing out in the country. Um, but that doesn't mean that Chaucer is easy to read because he's still um, using the Middle English, which isn't uh, standardized and doesn't have the same spellings or even pronunciations as modern English. Uh, during the Middle English period, there are no silent letters. So every letter is pronounced and the vowels do not have the same sounds that they have in modern English. We don't have the great vowel shift yet that changes the vowel sounds to what we're used to today. So even reading Chaucer, who's one of the easier ones to read, can still be difficult because Chaucer doesn't even spell words himself the same way. You may see the same words spelled within a couple pages of each other in completely different ways. And this wasn't considered a mistake back then. There was no standard spelling. Um, you could alter the spelling slightly if you wanted to alter the pronunciation because no letters were silent. If you wanted to put emphasis on one sound over the other, you might change the way it's spelled, um, keep the meaning, and change it for poetic reasons. So in Chaucer's... Um, works. He has quite a few, but one of the most famous ones is his Canterbury Tales. And this is stories told by a bunch of different pilgrims um, that are on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. It's a holy uh, pilgrimage. And Chaucer is still living in England during the time when England is still Catholic. So Chaucer is very much a Catholic writer living in Catholic England. This is before uh, Henry VIII, and this is before uh, England becomes Protestant. So the uh, church that is talked about in the Canterbury Tales is the Catholic Church. Um, the masses are told in Latin uh, still. The masses in Latin in the Catholic Church were Latin until the 20th century, until the 1960s. And then it changed uh, in Vatican II to where you could say the mass in whatever dialect you know, whatever language of the country you were 
presenting the Mass. Uh, so this is very much Catholicism and very much an older Catholicism. Um, but that doesn't mean that this is a Catholicism where the church isn't uh, parodied, where the church isn't held up to scrutiny. Uh, one of the things that always amazes me in Chaucer's writing is how much he um, takes figures from the church and kind of shows them as they were. Now, they're not these wonderful holy men that are in high regard because during this time period, uh, the Catholic Church had a lot of abuses. Um, you could buy forgiveness for sins you hadn't committed yet. Uh, if you were going to sleep with your neighbor's wife tonight, you could go see the uh, priest or the pardoner and give them some money and say, here's some money, I'm about to go commit adultery, uh, please forgive my sin, that way if the husband comes home and murders me, I don't die with the sin of adultery. Uh, I'm forgiven for it already. So there's a lot of corruption in the church, and you see a lot of this corruption in some of the various stories of the Canterbury Tales. Now his first tale that he goes into is the Knight's Tale after the prologue, and the Knight's Tale is very much a moral tale. And again, this is because this is about the upper class. The Knight is the highest class of the entire group. This is also why the Knight gets to tell his tale first. Um, the Miller is a uh, working class character. Uh, and he's kind of drunk and sort of interrupts right at the end of the knight's tale and comes in with and starts to tell his own tale. And the miller's tale is a tale about a carpenter um, who is also, there's a, car, there's a reeve who's a religious figure uh, who used to be a carpenter. Um, and so this tale is often seen as kind of a jab at the carpenter. Uh, who was a carpenter who's now come up a little higher in station. Um, but the Miller's tale is basically one long dirty joke. Uh, if, if you think that there were no dirty jokes, if there was no, you know, uh, what people today would call inappropriate material in the good old days, um, you're very mistaken uh, because there's a long tradition in a lot of the different literatures uh, all over the world of these very um, body tales. And the Miller's Tale is one of them. Um, the Miller's Tale is basically, spoiler alert, I'm going to sort of give you the gist of the tale. You have a carpenter who's the uh, main character. His name is John. And he is an older man who marries an 18-year-old girl who's beautiful. Now, one of the things that's often made fun of in this time is the idea of the cuckold. You know, the old man with the young, beautiful wife and the young, beautiful wife cheats on him. So you have this uh, sort of relationship between an old man and his young wife. And of course, the uh, Miller introduces um, two young men uh, who want to sleep with the wife. One of them is a student named Nicholas who is living with the, the carpenter and his wife while he does his studies. And the other one is a, a sort of parish priest, Absalom. Now, Nicholas sort of grabs the wife one day and uh, she's going to scream until he kind of talks her into having a romantic liaison with her uh, whenever the husband is gone. Well, he just, she agrees to it, and he decides he doesn't want to just have a quick liaison where the husband's out of the house for a few minutes. 
Uh, he wants to be able to have her for the night. So he comes up with this plan that she goes along with. And while he's supposed to be sleeping one night, the uh, student starts screaming. Uh, uh, and when the carpenter comes down and asks him what's going on, he says, I can't tell you. And he says, you know, finally the carpenter gets him to tell him. And he says, well, I had a dream that there's a second flood coming. Um, and so he with the carpenter decide they're going to uh, build a boat up in the uh, up in the attic, and when the water comes through for the floods, uh, they'll just have to cut the boat loose, cut a hole in the roof, and then they'll float off to safety, and everyone else will drown in the second flood. Well, while they're all up in this uh, attic ark, um, the uh, young man Nicholas and Allison wait for the old man to go to sleep, and then they sneak back down into the regular house and have their affair. After they're done, um, Allison had an admirer from the church, uh, Absalom, and Absalom comes to the window and he's trying to serenade Allison. And she's not really interested in him anymore because she now has Nicholas, um, and Absalom won't leave her alone until she gives him a kiss. So she tells him to close his eyes. Uh, and when he closes his eyes, she basically um, turns her butt to the window and sticks her butt in his face. So he kisses her on the rear end. And one of the funny parts of it is he's sitting there wondering why she had a beard, because women don't have beards. Uh, once he figures out what he did, he's absolutely horrified and decides he's going to go get revenge. So he goes to the blacksmith and gets a red-hot iron and comes back. Well, Allison and Nicholas have another uh, session, and then after they're done, uh, Nicholas and Allison get up, and, Alice, and Absalom is back at the window asking for another kiss because he's planning on getting revenge. Uh, this time, she tells him to close his eyes. He closes his eyes, and Nicholas sticks his butt out the window and farts in Absalom's face, Absalom, stunned for a moment and then recovers and sort of jams the red-hot poker up his rear end, and Nicholas starts screaming, water, water, water. The old man upstairs wakes up, thinks the flood is coming, cuts the arc loose, comes crashing down through the ceiling, uh, breaks his arm, brings the whole town running, and basically he's the laughingstock of the town now. So this is this whole tale of, you know, is not what you would expect. It's basically one long, dirty joke. Uh, but again, this is because these are lower class people. These are not kings. These are not knights. These are not, you know, the upper classes. And so it was considered appropriate to use the lower classes for humor. Uh, and this is something that doesn't go away until the Romantic period. It isn't until the Romantic period and later where you start to have middle and lower class characters who are actually serious uh, characters. They're, they're not just there to be made fun of. Um, this is kind of similar to in present times. If you think about what actors and actresses look, at, look like in serious movies versus comedies. Uh, we sort of have this tradition that, sadly, we haven't gotten rid of. You know, if you have a uh, serious drama, the actors and actresses should be beautiful people. Uh, anyone who's plain-looking uh, will end up in a comedy if they have a starring role. 
Um, and basically sort of this carries on that idea instead of it's the poor people that are only there to be made fun of you you've transferred that over to it's the plain looking people that are only there to be made fun of um, so Chaucer's tale uh, in the Miller's tale and his other tales in the Canterbury tales kind of give you some of the different um, elements of medieval society you know you have a widow, you have the knight, you have the squire, you have the reeve, you have the miller, um, you know, you have all of these different characters uh, who set up the society. So as you read the Canterbury Tales, you're kind of getting a good look at the medieval society and what the levels were and what the expectations were. And you can see that as you get the stories of the lower classes, those tend to be the more humorous. The tales of the upper classes, told by the upper classes, tend to be the more moralistic and serious tales. Okay, I'm going to break off for there. Um, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope to talk to you all again soon.